the comfortable life creates spiritual decay in the same way that soft, sweet food, you know, helps tooth decay. If you live this kind of comfortable, complacent sort of life, even with your best intentions, you, you will lose grip on what's important to you. You will become complacent in every day. And the things that mean everything to you will suddenly mean nothing to you. Welcome to Parallax Views, an IEA series of conversations about the politics of culture. My name is Mark Lindenning and I'm hugely pleased to be joined today by the philosopher Gary Lashman for the final part of a trilogy of uh, discussions and presentations concerning the concept of freedom, uh, both of which are available on uh, YouTube. Firstly, Gary spoke to me about the cha changing conceptions of human consciousness over the ages. And the second presentation was the wonderfully titled Trickle-Down Metaphysics from Nietzsche to Trump. Um, today, to round things off, Gary will be giving us an introduction to the writer Colin Wilson, uh, whose biography he has written, uh, Beyond the Robot, the Life and Work of Colin Wilson. Wilson is not well known now, um, but I believe he's of great relevance to the times we are living through. As we will shortly hear, Wilson promoted a life-affirming positive existentialism and challenged the idea that life was inherently meaningless and predetermined. Um, the challenge for people at the current time who are broadly speaking liberal is to counter the profound anti-humanist negativity of the age, uh, the era of the safe space against unsettling ideas. Colin Wilson provides us with a vision and account of freedom that indicates how we can take our consciousness and agency to a higher level, how we can acquire meaning. Over to you, Gary. All right, all right. Well, um, thank you very much, Mark, for that introduction. Um, how do I get to the slides with this? I think you click. I oh, am, yeah, but it's not, it's not, uh, sadly, it's not doing it. Uh. Is it working now? Yep. So uh, is uh, no, one? this isn't working. Someone just did it there. But in any case, um, I don't know. Do, do I need um, an assistant to do it, or can someone deal with this? Sorry for the technical difficulties, but um, yeah, Colin Wilson. Um, as Mark mentioned, he's not as well known or as read as he was at one time. He was actually a best-selling author uh, twice in his career, which is um, actually unusual if you're, you're lucky. If you you get a best-selling author and you stay one, but usually you become one and then you lose that status and then to gain it again is unusual. And uh, here's some pictures from him at different times. He was from Leicester um, in the Midlands. Uh, he was born in 1931 and he died uh, 2013, so about uh, 10, 10 years ago. And um, I'll get on to uh, his first book, The Outsider, uh, that made him an overnight um, uh, success. And uh, as Lord Byron's did, uh, his name, praises for his name rang through the country one morning when he woke up in uh, May 24th, I think, 1956. But say Beyond the Robot, that's the name of the, that's the title of my book, and it's a concept in, in Wilson's um, psychology and philosophy uh, that I'll try to get on to. Okay, yes. Um, 
Uh, an intellectual biography of the only optimistic existentialist. That's, uh, that's a quote from this very, very long blurb there that Philip Pullman uh, very kindly gave uh, for my book. And uh, I don't know if the fact that um, the, the publishers gave up a quarter of the cover space to the blurb either is a uh, testament to how much they appreciate Philip Pullman doing it or how much they banked on people buying the book. Uh, because of Philip Pullman. Uh, but he's one of the few contemporary writers um, who has anything good to say about Wilson. Um, there's not, not to, Stephen King in a different context. Um, Stephen King actually has a, 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 I think he did a novel, at least it was a TV series um, called The Outsider, which was not to do with Wilson's book, but he took the title. And um, around the same time as my book came out, my publishers in the States, uh, Jeremy Tarcher, who were associated with Penguin, they had the US rights to The Outsider. And so my editor um, thought it would be a good idea to put out a new edition. So I had the great honor for me to write an introduction to a new edition of Wilson's first book called The Outsider. And this is the book came out in 1956. He was a young man. He was 24. Um, he had spent the previous 10 years working at a series of different menial sort of jobs and always giving up a job as soon as the boredom set in. Uh, he, he, was, he was a Navi, he worked on farms, he was a barista, uh, he was a hospital porter, and we'll get on to some of the other things he did um, in this decade, uh, up, up from uh, the late 40s up, in, up until the early 50s when he, when he became um, uh, famous and successful. And I'm just putting in, uh, just for myself here, um, Wilson, when he was still alive, 2003, uh, 20 years ago, he wrote uh, an introduction to a book of mine called The Secret History of Consciousness. And that book has some of the material that um, I spoke with Mark about in, in one of our talks about different structures or different uh, types of consciousness that some thinkers uh, have mapped out over, over history. Um, we'll be talking about that uh, tonight, but, um, or this afternoon. But consciousness is fundamentally what Wilson was interested in, his own and, and, and human, human beings uh, in general. Um, and what was it about consciousness that he was obsessed with? Well, there's something wrong with it. There's something, it doesn't quite work properly. Uh, and um, he encapsulated the, this, this strange uh, character of consciousness in what he called the paradoxical nature of freedom. And um, I mentioned that Wilson died 2013. Uh, the following year, uh, 2014, there was a memorial service for him at St. James Piccadilly. It's, um, it's a well-known um, center, the church there. People like Rupert Sheldrake and other people have given talks there. And uh, so there was a memorial service for him, and I was given five minutes to sort of sum up uh, Wilson's 50-plus year uh, career of work in writing in a variety of different um, areas. He wrote uh, philosophy, he wrote about psychology, he wrote a lot about crime. He was one of the early uh, true crime writers, but from an existential point of view. Um, he wrote science fiction novels. Um, he wrote about the occult and the supernatural and the paranormal. And second part of his career, or um, in the early 70s, when um, his book The Occult uh, was another bestseller. That's when I first read Wilson, 1975, when I was living in New York. I was playing in a rock and roll band, which is you know a surefire 
prerequisite for reading books about existentialism. <laughs> Uh, and living on the Bowery, and um, amidst the debris of the previous generation, the kind of 60s hippie generation, and before the punk generation kind of came up into its own, there was all this stuff floating around, and one of Wilson's book, this book called The Occult, was there, and I, I read it, and it literally changed my life. So I was a musician then, but what I've been doing for the past 20-something years has been writing about the sorts of things that I discovered uh, in, in reading Wilson's work. But um, what is the paradoxical nature of freedom? Well, the paradoxical nature of freedom is when freedom is threatened, or any of our values are threatened, we know exactly what they are and how important they are. Uh, he, he, he says, you know, he talks about um, when the tanks rolled into Budapest or, or, or something like that, he's talking about in the, in the 50s. Uh, you know, what, what freedom was was no longer ambiguous. It, it was as concrete as, as, as the silver, you know, or, or, you know uh, or the dishes or something like that. And uh, when there's a crisis, when there's a threat to our values, something happens in us and our grip on them becomes, becomes tenacious. We'll fight, you know, tooth and nail to save them. But once the crisis is gone, once the crisis subsides, Involuntarily, whether we like it or not, we lose that kind of alert, vigorous uh, attention to our freedom and we become complacent. And then our freedom becomes a burden. We have time to kill. You know, it, it becomes something that weighs on us. It's something we don't know what to do with ourselves. So, and, and, and the whole idea, you know, it's not until some other crisis happens, some other threat to our freedom, that we suddenly remember why it's important and all that. So this was something. He said, we will fight tooth and nail. We'll do everything we can to preserve our freedom. But once we have it, we involuntarily lose our grip on it. And um, he often quotes um, the German philosopher Fichte, uh, who was a Kantian, 19th century. And Fichte said, uh, to be free is nothing. To become free is very heaven. So it's the, the act of asserting and regaining our freedom is somehow we, we get greater return from that than actually possessing the freedom once we have regained it. So this is the paradox. So uh, The Outsider at Large, um, that's the first edition of Wilson's book, came out in 1956. I said he had been working at a variety of different menial jobs um, in London, in France. Um, he hitchhiked down uh, from Leicester down you know, to Dover and went over uh, on the, you know, the ferry over to France, and he bummed around France for a while in the early 50s, uh, writing and writing and writing all the time. And um, he had an infinite, um, unflappable confidence in himself, which one would think you might have to have in order to do what he did. Uh, but uh, this confidence in his own genius, actually, uh, later on when he became famous and he was interviewed, um, he very naively would mention the G word a little too, too often, and um, the publicists and the, the journalists at the time uh, knew a good story when they had one, and so uh, they, you know, they sort of went to town with that. Uh, this is a famous picture of him. Uh, to tell you something about what Wilson went through before he made it, for a time, um, to save rent money, renting a place, he slept on Hampstead Heath in a, in a waterproof sleeping bag. And then he would cycle down from Hampstead Heath to the British Museum where the old reading room was. 
It's not there anymore. I think it's been closed off for many, many years. But there's an, there's an, an, an inner rotunda, this fantastic sort of you know, dome structure. It was the old reading room of the British Library. It's, there's the British Library now, that postmodern you know, pile that's next to the Victorian pile over by St. Pancras. doesn't really have quite the same romance. I'm sorry, no, no, not quite the same thing. But I mean, to get an idea, Marx, Bernard Shaw, H.G. Uh, Wells, Ruskin, and all these other people, you know, spend time in, in the old reading room of the British, British Library. So Wilson would sleep in a waterproof sleeping bag on Hampstead Heath. He would cycle down to the British Library, uh, uh, the, excuse me, British Museum, spend all day there working on a novel we'll get on to. And uh, then what he was for, one of the things he was doing for a while, he was working as, as a barrister in a, in a coffee house on Haymarket. Um, this would have been the mid-50s. The mid and he was working on his first novel, Ritual in the Dark, that we'll get to. Uh, but this, this, this was posed after the success, because the book came out, and it was an overnight success. And you would, you would think that a book about existentialism and anxiety and mental stress and uh, an inquiry into the disease of the modern world or something like that, that would not be the, you know, the most popular summer reading. Uh, but somehow in the summer of 1956, it became an overnight success. Uh, this is a shot of him when he was living in, um, uh, uh, over in uh, Notting Hill. Um, uh, and that's uh, his wife, uh, Joy, his, his widow now, who still lives down in Cornwall, where uh, Wilson, um, after being caught up in um, what was known as the angry young men at the time, uh, this was, the journalists were happy, suddenly there was a post-war, a new post-war literary generation. There really wasn't one. After World War II, there wasn't a new sort of literary generation that came in. And in, um, just, just coincidentally, at the same time as The Outsider was published and received rave reviews in all of the newspapers at the time, uh, there was a play called Look Back in Anger. Uh, by John Osborne, which is the, it sort of initiated the kitchen sink drama. Do you know what I mean? This was like, you know, uh, everyday life, banal, domestic, horrible life, two people stuck together living in a bedsit, and how gruesome that is. And so Look Back in Anger was a play about that. And then there were other young writers who came up at the same time. And it was J.B. Priestley, who was an established writer, um, who coined the phrase, the angry young men. And Wilson got grouped in with these others. But the, the, the angries, like Osborne and Kenneth Tynan and Kingsley Amos to some degree and some others, they were much more concerned about social issues. They were, if not Marxist socialists of some degree, so it was all sort of social issues. It was sort of like, you know, um, the welfare state and things of that sort. Um, Wilson really had nothing in common with them. He came from a working class family. His father was a boot and shoe worker, and I think he earned something like four quid a week up in Leicester in, you know, when Wilson was growing up in the 30s and the 40s. So he came from a very, very, not poor, but you know, not deprived, but um, you know, working class background. Uh, so you would think that he might be more interested in, in those kind of issues. But he really had no interest in the political Marxists. He wasn't pink in any way and that sort of thing. And he was attacked at the time by these people uh, because he didn't share their political points of views. Uh, he wasn't interested in politics, although early in his career he used to give uh, talks at um, Speaker's Corner of, on, on anarchism uh, 
just, just he said, just to develop his speaking voice. He didn't particularly believe in anarchism or anything else he was talking about. He just wanted to be able to learn how to address an audience. And this is a book he wrote in one of his last years about, about um, the, ang the, the angry young men and a variety of different writers at the time. One of the few who he later on said that he, he appreciated the, their work and felt some connection with it was Doris Lessing. If you know her, she was a, a novelist. Um, well, she, she died some years ago, but um, she, she, she wrote about sort of social issues and things of that sort, but she also had a broader philosophical, might we say spiritual, point of view. And that was Wilson's um, sort of thing. The outsider is not so much concerned with social sort of issues. He's concerned with those basic fundamental issues of like, why do we exist? Why are we here? Uh, is, you know, life worth living? I mean, Camus, Albert Camus, one of the people Wilson will write about and actually later meet uh, in the myth of Sisyphus, he said suicide is the single philosophical kind of question. You know, uh, you know should, is, is life worth living? You know, should, should we blow our brains out or not? And this kind of tension between ultimate yes and ultimate no, I mean, ultimate yes, that's William Blake, that's his uh, watercolor, Glad Day. If you know Blake, Blake is this visionary. Um, you can see heaven, uh, you know, in, in a flower and whatever world in a grain of sand. I'm mixing it up in there, but you know, well, that sort of thing. Uh, Blake was no uh, stranger to misery and, and horrible social conditions. I mean, he he was he lived most of his life in poverty, and uh, his family was not well off or anything like that. But he was a visionary. He had some some vision of something beyond the everyday world. And uh, he would have these moments of you know, complete, absolute yay-saying, uh, everything that lives is holy. And the other side, you have you know, the sleep of reason uh, breeds demons, the ultimate no, this kind of you know, darkness, uh, this, this uh, nihilism, this notion that life is a big joke. And you know, um, if, if we're free, you know, we are the, actually the most creative thing we could do is like blow our brains out mostly. So you have an individual <laughs> outsider there. I don't know what bridge this. I don't know. I don't know what the it's the Thames or not. But oh, okay. but um, you know, I just just plundered it off. You know, Google Images. But uh, someone in the tension between these sorts of these things. And this was the sort of thing that Wilson was interested in and obsessed with. And this is why the, the more socially conscious writers at the time called him a fascist and things of that sort. They would call anybody a fascist who wasn't interested in their sort of leftism. Um, and um, just to get a brief kind of overview, I mean, the outside of the book itself, it's, he talks about uh, uh, many, many people. Nietzsche's in there, Hermann Hesse. He was one of the first people to talk about Hermann Hesse. Uh, Hesse's novels, many of them weren't even translated into English yet. And, and um, Wilson was talking about them in advance of the big Hesse. You probably don't know, but when I, when I was an adolescent, Herman, everyone in, in high school and then early years of college were reading Hesse's novels. So in the early, early 70s, he was you know, fantastically successful. And he was someone who was, he actually was a bestseller posthumously. He became a best-selling writer after he died. Uh, and, um, but um, Sartre and Camus and uh, Hemingway and Dostoevsky and so on and so on. So Wilson is writing about all of these kind of characters that they themselves are obsessed in different ways with, with the question of freedom. Or the question of, I find myself here in this world. What am I supposed to do? How should I act in this world now? How should I live? And I have. Um, these three figures here uh, under this 
quotation from, from the book, the outsider sees too deep and too much, and what he sees is chaos. And the notion is, it's as if the outsider has a kind of x-ray vision and he can see below the surface of everyday life. And what the kind of banal, bourgeois, you know, domestic kind of uh, world we all live in, that's a kind of surface layer, but underneath it is a kind of seething kind of chaos. Um, no one really knows what's going on, but no one wants to talk about this. It's like the emperor's new clothes. You know, you're not supposed to own up that the emperor isn't wearing anything. He's naked, but if we all agree that he's clothed in these fantastic, you know, uh, fabrics of finery, it will all get on like that. So everyone, to, to avoid the kind of uncomfortableness of facing the truth of, of, of reality, we, we all agree to this kind of fiction. But the outsider is someone who can't accept that. And somehow, for some reason, he's blessed or cursed with the kind of x-ray vision who can see underneath the surface. And these are three representative figures. Uh, that's T.E. Lawrence, um, who represents the intellectual outsider. You might consider Lawrence the man of action. He was, but he was also someone who could not stop thinking. Uh, he thought, he was like Wittgenstein was another one like that. I, mean, I might have had Wittgenstein, and he, he turns up later on. Um, to jump ahead, if you know any, anything about Ludwig Wittgenstein, when he lived in Cambridge and he was studying there, he used to go to the movies, and he would sit in the front row, and no matter what was playing, he just would sit in the front row and watch, and just so he could stop thinking. So, uh, like Bugs Bunny cartoons, or Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire movies. It didn't matter what it was. Lawrence is one of these people, too, he could not stop thinking. And if you ever get a chance to look at his uh, work, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which is about the campaign in, in Arabia. I don't know if you know who Lawrence was. In World War I, he was an English um, officer who was sent to help um, start the Arab revolt um, in the Near East uh, against the Turks, and the Turks were on the, the side of the Germans, you know, the bad guys. So he was sent to foment an Arab revolt. And he fell in love with the Arabs. And he, he wanted to help them have a united sort of nation. And uh, he was enormously successful. Uh, but after the war, he realized that the politicians were never going to agree to a united Arab nation, and they wanted to keep the different factions uh, at, at war with each other. Uh, uh, so that it didn't become a, a power in, 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 in the area. And uh, this, this drove Lawrence mad. And um, he tried to escape from the celebrity that he had acquired at the time. Uh, he, um, <clears throat> he signed up to the RAF as a private. He was in the newspaper, so you know, he, was, he, he could have had anything he wanted. Um, you know, he was given many prestigious honors, but he was disgusted by all of that. And he signed up as a private in the RAF. Uh, so, but he's, he was the intellectual outsider. You have the, the emotional one is Vincent van Gogh, um, who uh, he, his life was this turmoil, this, this kind of uh, pendulum swing back from ultimate yes, ultimate no himself. You have the sunflower, you have the starry night, but then he has that horrible painting of the crows out, out, out in the field and all that. And uh, he winds up you know, killing himself. He cuts his ear off first, uh, and then he winds up, um, you know, shooting himself, and, and so on and so on. And the physical outsider here is Nijinsky, Vaslav Nijinsky, the great um, ballet dancer. Uh, and again, uh, his diary is one of the most heartbreaking, poignant works of the 20th century. Uh, he, he was not the most eloquent character, not the most articulate, but you know he's pouring out his soul. And he said when he danced, he felt God. God is fire in the head. 
and he, 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 you know, he, God is this kind of ecstasy that he would experience when he was dancing. But in terms of um, intellect, uh, he was a child, and people like Diaghilev and uh, Stravinsky and others basically kind of made fun of him and controlled him. When he danced, he was divine, but any other time, um, he was, they just treated him as a child. And he went insane. So the outsider has some <laughs> occupational hazards. Uh, there, are some, there are some problems uh, with this kind of character. And Wilson charts this kind of character through a series of books. The follow-up to um, The Outsider Itself is a book called Religion and the Rebel, where Wilson explores the possibilities of, of religious answer to the outsider's dilemma. The outsider is someone who craves a sense of meaning and purpose in a world that does not, is not able to supply that. In a world of comfort, uh, in a world of the welfare state, uh, in, 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 in the, the increasingly scientized world, the rational kind of state, the kind of appetite, the yearning for meaning and purpose that the outsider has which used to be able to be satisfied in a religious way. That's why Wilson considered for a while entering a monastery. Uh, but he didn't because A, he couldn't, well, A, he couldn't give up sex, and B, he couldn't swallow Catholic dogma. But for a while he did, he, he, he read about the great um, saints and the great Christian mystics and all that. Uh, then this book, Wishing in the Dark, this is the novel he was working on when um, he was sleeping on Hampstead Heath and cycling down to the uh, reading room. And um, it's best described as Jack the Ripper, Jack the Ripper meets uh, the brothers Karamazov in uh, duffel-coated post-war uh, East End. And there's three characters in it that exemplify the intellectual, the emotional, and the physical outsider, like uh, Lawrence, Van Gogh, and uh, Nijinsky. So three characters in the book. And Wilson has said he was very interested in crime. He's one of the earliest true crime writers, but from a philosophical point of view. What drives people to commit murders? And what, 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 what is the meaning and value of human life? You know, in, in one sense, you know, it's absolute. In another sense, people basically throw it away for a few pounds. You know, or they throw it away because they're um, angry at their girlfriend in the sense that they commit a murder. There's something like that. So, and how distant are we from the kind of negation of the values the, the murderer who throws his life away and the life of his victim away over some trivial sort of thing has completely lost grip on the sense of any value, of his own freedom, anything like that. How far away are we in our everyday life from that? We may not be murderers, but we don't have that intense grip on our values that we talked about before, the paradoxical nature of freedom. We ourselves in everyday life, we basically have, well, you know, who cares uh, kind of attitude. Uh, is it, it's not worth it sort of attitude. It's only when the crisis confronts us that we realize it is worth it to do that. So he explored this kind of psychology um, of value through um, uh, writing about different um, uh, murderers, basically. Uh, so I'm just going to walk you through quickly. Um, so Wilson wrote a whole cycle of books called The Outsider Cycle. This was after the critical sort of volta face about him. He, he, was, he could do no wrong. Uh, Cyril Connolly, uh, uh, Philip Toynbee, very, very, at the time, important literary critics or, or highbrow um, book reviewers in the newspapers spoke very highly of, uh, of uh, Edith Sitwell, spoke very, very highly of, of uh, Wilson's first book. But then they all turned against him. 
They all, they, they, everyone got tired of the angry young man. And they certainly got tired of Wilson, who uh, he was called uh, 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 the, the midget Zarathustra from Leicester, or something like that. So they just considered him a smart, clever guy who read lots of books and sewed this kind of thing together and didn't really have anything original to say. And what happened is Wilson left London and he went down to Cornwall and he, he sequestered himself in this place called Gorin Haven, you know, which at the time there was nothing around him. I mean, it's all kind of built up now. I've been down there many times. Uh, but at the time there was no one down there. And so he just, he just wrote book after book after book. So he had infinite confidence in, in himself. Uh, but the critics at the time kind of just, they just, you know, he was not, they didn't want him anymore. Uh, so uh, his books either were ignored or they were attacked. But he wrote a whole series of books outlining what, an attempt that he was making to develop what he eventually came to call a new existentialism. The Age of Defeat is a study of the loss of the hero in modern literature. There's no, there's, you know, there's no Captain Ahab's, you know, there's no Faust's. There's not, we, we have, you know, uh, John Osborne's uh, kitchen sink, you know, dilemmas or you have uh, Arthur Miller, Death of a Salesman, or things of that sort, or Stanley Kowalski, um, you know, and, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, I can't remember his name now, the American, um, uh, I can't remember his name, it'll, it'll come to me later. Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, you know, um, all that. So, uh, Strength of Dream is the study of literature and the imagination. This is an interesting thing, this is the beginning of what Wilson called an existential criticism, rather to sign up complement literary uh, literary criticism. And it's the sense that although the writer may be saying something on the surface ostensibly, we, get, we can get a real idea of how they see, he or she sees the world by actually how, they, how the world is presented in, in their stories. How do they use the imagination to present their values in a certain way? And um, Again, where Wilson was ahead of the game in The Outsider with writing about Herman Hesse, he, he was ahead of the game in writing about the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft in here. I don't know if you know who he was. Uh, he was when I was growing up, uh, I was obsessed with Lovecraft, and there's a whole Lovecraft you know, cult. Well, there should be one, more than one now. Uh, but Wilson was writing about him well in advance of, of Lovecraft mania, which uh, started up. Um, he wrote about the uh, origins of the sexual impulse. He did a phenomenology of the male sexual impulse, which I think is one of, the most in, one of his most important books. And I've actually used it recently because I, a book coming out next year is a biography of a fellow named Morris Nichol. Nobody knows who he was, but he was an early Jungian. He was Jung's lieutenant around this time, well, a century ago here. Uh, but then he changed his allegiance, jumped ship, and he became a student of Gurdjieff. I don't know if you know who... Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff was this strange, enigmatic, um, esoteric teacher who came out of Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union in, in the early 20th century. Uh, but in any case, um, diaries written by this guy Nichols show, among other things, he was absolutely obsessed with sex. So I had a wonderful opportunity to apply some of Wilson's ideas about the male sexual impulse to uh, analyzing this diary. Beyond the Outsider was Wilson trying to take all the ideas that he wrote about in the, in the other books and, 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 and developing ways in which science and psychology uh, and philosophy could be informed with them. And then he kind of packaged it all up in a book called Introduction to the New Existentialism. And this is what Wilson really at the time was trying to do. He wanted to take existentialism, which was a philosophy that rejected the systematic or over-rationalized kind of philosophies of Hegel 
or sort of logical positivism or linguistics analysis um, and bring it down to the everyday experience of everyday life. Uh, and he thought that existentialism had hit a cul-de-sac, which sounds fancier than a dead end, you know, because there's Sartre and Camus in there, so get some French. And we can say existentialism, although you can find existential motifs as far back as Plato, you can find them in the Bible. Um, but the, the kind of modern, you know, what we understand if you pick up a book about, you know, existentialism for dummies or something like that, which all, all, everything I know about it came from that, I have to say, from my reading existentialism for dummies. No, sorry. But it starts with Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Danish uh, writer. He was an eccentric character in Copenhagen in the 19th century. And Kierkegaard, his thing was that um, he was anti-Hegel. And if you know Hegel, Hegel had this vision of this huge system, philosophical system that accounted for everything. Everything from, from the, the merest sense perception, this, to the absolute, which encompasses everything, that kind of thing. And it's a, a I mean, the phenomenology of mind and uh, other of his books, he spells this sort of thing out. And it's, an, it's a remarkable, one of these remarkable 19th century huge you know, structures like the, like, um, the Ring Cycle or, or Balzac's you know, human comedy or something like that. But Kierkegaard's question was, fine and dandy, you summed up the entire universe. Um, but what about me? I have a toothache or my shoes are too tight or my girlfriend doesn't like me, or I'm having all these problems with all this other stuff, and I don't know what to do uh, anymore. And um, what, you, what you show me here, your, your system, it's as if you had given me a map of Copenhagen, uh, but it was actually a map of the world, and Copenhagen's just the smallest little dot on it. I can't find my way around in the world with your system. You've summed everything up, but I cannot find my way. I, it doesn't tell me what I should do how I should live my life. And Kierkegaard, he approached it from a religious point of view, because he, he thought the Christianity of his time was just complacent and lip service Christianity. It wasn't real Christianity. The people weren't really living like Christians. Uh, and so he's the one who came up with the notion of the leap of faith and the notion of angst and anxiety. Uh, you, you can't really know that you exist unless you feel a sense of angst and anxiety, you, unless you feel the, the terrible burden of being. And he has a wonderful quote where he says, if, if, I'm, if I'm forced to live out in this world, I would, if I'm forced to play out in this, this you know, play here, I'd like to see the director. <laughs> can, I, can I talk to the director, please? And we have, we have no access to the director. We find ourselves as Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, who was one of the uh, academic philosophers who sort of rediscovered Kierkegaard. Uh, in the 1920s, he said, we're, we're thrown into the world. Geworfenheit. We are thrown. We find ourselves here. We don't, we don't have a, a guidebook. You know, uh, we, 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 we don't have the, you know, the easy planet traveler guide or anything like that. We don't have anything telling us what we're supposed to do now that we're here. And this is the existential question. How should I live? What is the meaning of life? Why does anything exist? Why do I exist? And Heidegger... Uh, We'll come on to the philosopher he came out of, but um, he, was, he was a student and a colleague of Edmund Husserl. I'll get on to him uh, in the next thing. But Husserl developed a whole philosophical system called phenomenology. And like the, well, like the existentialism that came out of it, 
the whole idea was to say, okay, let's get rid of all these systems, let's get rid of all this Hegelian kind of, you know, structure that we've got, let's get rid of everything we think we know about reality and just try to describe it. Let us just try to describe our experience as clearly and, and as much in detail as possible. So that's what phenomena, phenomena is phenomena, phenomena. Phenomenology is the study of. So every, that's, that's a phenomena, your phenomena, I'm a phenomena, <laughs> for, you know, for you, you know. So we all find ourselves here in the world. What is it like to be in the world? And that's what Heidegger, he wrote this huge, it's, it's truncated, he never finished it, with this huge work called Being in Time. And what it is is what he called the fundamental ontology. So onto is being. So it's, he's, he's tried to get to a fundamental sense of being, a description of being. What is it like to be in the world? That's what the existential turn was from the kind of systematic philosophy of Hegel, where you have all kind of different logical structures and things of that sort, and the dialectics that Marx took, you know, famously Marx turned Hegel on his head, and uh, instead of the spirit, actualizing itself through history, through this dialectical process that Hegel spells out in the phenomenology of spirit. Marx said, no, it's got nothing to do with spirit. It's, it's the means of production. It's the class war. The same, the same kind of structure, the same kind of, how should we say it, kind of uh, movement is taking place, dialectical, but it's got nothing to do with spirit. It's about the class war and all that. Um, but um, Heidegger said, like, okay, what is it like to be in the world? That's what he called, you know, Zion, being in the world. And Dasein, that, that's how he, just, that's his name for the human experience of being in the world. It's called Dasein. Being there, there was a film many, many years ago with, uh, uh, or the, based on the novel by Jerzy Kaczynski, it was about that, uh, you know, being there. How is, how is it that we are here in the world? Sartre picked up on that. Um, and um, Sartre tried to outdo Heidegger. Then he wrote Being and Nothingness. Uh, and uh, and uh, that came out of Sartre's experiences uh, uh, during the war and also um, his early experiences. Actually, I'm a great deal of Sartre's philosophy comes out of a bad masculine trip. Uh, in the 1930s, a lot of people were experimenting with mescalines. This was before LSD was discovered. And it was the different artists and poets and you know philosophers and scientists. Who, you know, Aldous Huxley famously takes it in, in the early '50s, Dort's perception, and starts kind of the modern psychedelic movement that came out of that. Um, but earlier than that, uh, Sartre, Huxley had a good experience. Sartre had a bad experience on it. He had a bad trip. He thought lobsters were following him down the Champs Elysees, <laughs> and clocks were turning into uh, owls, and they were hooting at him. And he was fight. He, he he tells there's some letter where he's like writing to Simone de Beauvoir and saying I'm having a, a battle with the scuttlefish and I don't think I will survive. And so if you know his novel Nausea, um, this is about this character who everyday things which we nor normally ordinarily you know um, are accustomed to suddenly they become strange. They become alien to this character of Rokenton and and Sartre's novel Nausea. And um, he, has, he, he goes to open a door, and he doesn't know what this thing is in his hand. It's the doorknob. And then he's in a park, and he looks at a tree, and he sees the, the knotted bowl of the tree. And it's just this strange alien reality that presses itself on him. 
Uh, Sartre did not. Sartre wasn't a nature lover. He didn't. He did not have a good relationship with the external world. I mean, Huxley took mescaline, and he had this fantastic vision of you know what Adam saw on on, on the first day of creation. Sartre is like everything is sticky and pasty, and it, it, it wouldn't let him go, and all this kind of thing. But he develops what he what he believes to be a, a primal perception of things. Nausea is the real perception of things. We falsify the world in order to make it comfortable for us to live in. So we give names to things. That's a cloud, that's a tree, that's a dog, you're a person, whatever it is. I know we have lots of trouble now using the right names for things, but the, the, the notion still applies. And when the nausea hits, it's as if the adhesive holding the names onto things suddenly melts and the names fall off. So he, it's, it, if you ever, when I was a kid, I used to say a word over and over and over again, and then it just, just became a noise. That's what was happening to this character in Sartre's novel. But Sartre believes that's the actual reality. And if we don't face that, if we falsify it, this is what he calls bad faith. We somehow, we, we, we in some way falsify this, this world that is completely alien to us. We, we are completely contingent and arbitrary. We're thrown into the world. There's no reason why we exist. There's no reason why anything exists. We can't apply the notion of probability to whether the world exists or not, because all of our notions of probability come out of the world that we're trying to discover whether it's probable or not. So we can't, it's like, we can't, we can't do that. And Camus more or less does the same thing. He talks about the absurd. Sartre talks about la nausée, and Camus talks about the absurd. And he talks about suddenly in our everyday life, we're on the tram, we're getting up, we're going to work, and then suddenly out of nowhere we're hit with this kind of sense of like, what is it all about? The meaning of everything just falls away. And again, he believes this is the true vision. So the existential vision at this point is a kind of stoic recognition of the meaninglessness of everything and a determination to live without the illusions that everyone else lives with in order to make life comfortable and go on. I mean, uh, the, those who do that, Sartre calls the saluds, they're the bastards, they're the, they're the shits who like, they, they they all agree on this false world, and they refuse to see the chaos that the outsider sees. Now, Wilson can appreciate that. Wilson can appreciate that. He can appreciate, as we say, the critical work that the early existentialists did on undermining the illusions that most of us live with. And he, he early on talked about writing a book called The Methods and Techniques of Self-Deception. He never really got around to doing it. Um, but while Wilson could recognize that, he also knew what Blake meant when Blake had those moments of yay saying, that, that vision of glad day, these moments of affirmation. And he would say even Sartre and Camus, Heidegger himself, they recognized those, but they, they didn't make them central to their philosophy. In, in the novel Nausea, there's a scene where Rokentin is in a calf and he's having a glass of wine and he's listening to a record of a woman singing a blues song, one of these days you're going to miss me honey or something like that. And suddenly he said he felt hard as a diamond. His sense of being became strong and powerful and he was no longer felt contingent. He no longer felt arbitrary. Contingent means you're, you're not necessary. Your existence is not necessary. It's contingent on something else. And suddenly he felt he was strong enough to keep at bay the pasty, sticky, <laughs> nauseating reality that was overwhelming him. And Camus uh, as well, he has, uh, at the end of his novel, uh, The Stranger, 
where Merceau sleepwalks through this whole thing. He sleepwalks through his, his mother's death, his mother's funeral. He sleepwalks through all his whole life. He winds up accidentally shooting an Arab on a beach somewhere. And he gets arrested and he doesn't even defend himself. And he winds up getting convicted for the murder he should not have been. And it's only the last minute when the priest tries to console him with some you know, religious sentiment that he gets angry. And the anger kind of throws off the sleepwalking that he had. And he said, I was happy. I, I was happy and I didn't know I was happy. Well, too bad. It happens just before you, you're going to be executed. But this, this was this notion that there's a sense of loss of a sense of being that we're subject to. And it's only in these moments of kind of crisis. So Sartre and Camus knew it. And Heidegger knows it as well, but he, he sees it in more poetic terms. He talks about how certain, certain poets, uh, the work of certain poets is able to... Uh, evoke the sense in him. But Wilson develops what he calls uh, a new existentialism. I don't know how I am on time. Got um, another sort of 10 minutes-ish. Yeah. Okay, I'll try to go as quickly as I can. Uh, these three people, I, I mentioned Maslow, I think, earlier. Um, Abraham Maslow. Uh, he was an American psychologist whose father of humanistic psychology and he came to the conclusion, well, one of the things, he started out as a Freudian, the behaviorist, and then he got tired of studying sick people. And he wanted to know, what, what's human psychology like of healthy people? And so he started to study the healthiest people he could find. And, and he realized that there's actually healthy humans are prone to having what he called peak experiences. And there, there are sudden, spontaneous moments of absolute joy or yay saying or sense of fulfillment but they're, they're nothing mystical they're nothing they, they come out of everyday experiences they're, they're, uh, he, he, he relates one of a woman who um, busily getting off her sorry this is back in the day when this this was taken for granted busily take getting his her, her children and her husband off you know off to school and off to work and all that and she sits down and suddenly she said I'm happy and she suddenly, she was just happy with her life. It wasn't anything extra. Nothing special had happened. She had merely seen the value of what she possessed. She really saw the reality of the value of the things that she already possessed. Uh, and um, Maslow also came to, he has this notion of the hierarchy of needs. I can't go through all of them. Uh, this food, shelter, sex and belonging, self-esteem, which I think we're all stuck at at this point. Um, on going by social media. But beyond that, there's what he called the self-actualization level of human psychology, which meaning we have an innate nature, innate drive to actualize ourselves, to become who we are, to fulfill the potential that we have in ourselves. This is Edmund Husserl I mentioned earlier that Heidegger came out of. Uh, Husserl's a old-fashioned Herr Doctor Professor, German Herr Doctor Professor, nothing mystical about him, but he's the one who developed phenomenology. And the fundamental inside of phenomenology is that perception is intentional, right? Perception is intentional. We tend to think it's a passive um, process. I open my eyes, there's a world out there, and my consciousness somehow mirrors the world that's out there. That's the Cartesian kind of view. Pusso said, no, actually, there's some part of you below your conscious mind, you're not doing this voluntarily, which is reaching out in order to perceive the world. It's, it's like there's an arrow, or, or perception is like a hand. It's not, it's not a mirror. We don't reflect, we reach out and grab the world. 
And if that's the case, you can have a very strong grasp of the world, or you can have a very weak one, or no grasp at all. And uh, Whitehead, someone who had a similar uh, sort of idea, Alfred North Whitehead's um, English uh, Anglo-American philosopher, last century. And um, I, just to go quickly, he, he, he had a notion that we had two, two modes of perception, what he would call immediacy perception, which is the mere facts, the mere facts of things, what's out in front of us, this is what the senses tell us, and what he calls meaning perception, is this kind of glue holding all the facts together, which we can understand them as a kind of gestalt, rather than individual fractured sorts of things. That's, that's a very thumbnail sketch. But what Wilson is saying is that um, someone like Sartre and Camus, when they're experiencing the nausea and the absurd, and they're taking it as the fundamental truth of, of reality, it's actually it's the opposite way around. They're, they have simply allowed their intentionality to diminish so that they are no longer actually grabbing the world in its fullness. They're merely seeing this kind of surface, immediate, um, uh, layer of it, which is what the immediate senses tell us. And um, Cam Camus gives the example of, of someone in a phone booth, right? And we're outside. You can see the person in the phone booth on the phone gesturing and all this. And he says, it looks absurd because we, we don't hear the conversation. And Wilson would say, yes, it does look absurd, but you're purposely extracting an element from the experience, which is if you were in the phone box, you would hear at least one side of the conversation. Nowadays, you hear both sides. People don't even use the earphones anymore. They just have you know, their phone. It drives me out of my mind. I'm um, saying, so that, that analogy wouldn't work. So what Wilson is showing is that what Sartre and Camus and others are positing as a fundamental reality is actually bad phenomenology. Uh, they're letting their intentionality diminish, and they're losing track of what they're actually projecting in to um, the experience. And why I have this up here is the crisis and convenience and the indifference threshold. Wilson, dis Wilson discovered through his own analysis of consciousness is that we can get to such a state um, of boredom and disinterest and indifference to things that we would not be um, moved out of it by anything good happening to ourselves. You know how it is if someone's in a miserable mood and you try to cheer them up with something you know, really good, they, they, they don't care. It, does, it makes them worse, something like that. They feel worse at that. But Wilson discovered that if you actually are confronted with a real crisis, then that will have the effect of getting you out of the depression more than actually anything good. A, a real problem that you have, actually have to deal with will have more effect cheering you up than the greatest good news you could possibly get. And he tells a story of that, that's Harold Lloyd, that's an old uh, silent movie uh, actor. I forget what film that's from. But he tells the story of Graham Greene, the novelist Graham Greene. When he was a young man, he, was, he suffered from horrible, horrible depression. And he went to you know, the best doctors in Vienna, and he went on to analysis and all this sort of stuff. And nothing worked for him. And um, he was, Greene read something about Russian soldiers playing Russian roulette. You know, Russian roulette, you get the gun, you put you know, the bullet in the chamber, you spin it, and you, you click. You don't, you don't know whether you're going to blow your brains out or not. So he, he, in an essay called The Revolver in the, cupboard, uh, in the Corner Cupboard, Green finds a revolver that his older brother has. And so he decides to play Russian roulette. He's so bored to tears with life 
Nothing means anything to him that he's willing to take a chance on blowing his brains out just to get a kick out of something. He finds some ammunition, puts a bullet in, he goes on to Berkhamstead Common, puts, spins the chamber, puts it to his head, and then when he presses the trigger and hears a click on the empty chamber, he says, suddenly it's as if lights went on all around me. And suddenly everything changed around him. Suddenly he saw you know, meaning and significance and importance and beauty where before he was completely indifferent to it. So what happened? So Wilson says what happened is that by doing this, involuntarily waiting, you know, Green did this. He made his mind into a fist. He tightened his consciousness into a fist. And this is what the inconvenience does. This is what the threat to our freedom does. We try to do it ourselves and we can't because our unconscious mind knows we're vacillating cowards and it won't do it for us. Hypnotists might do it because that's another voice of authority. But our unconscious mind knows us for who we are. But when a real crisis emerges, it does it. And so this is what happens. So Wilson said, crisis and inconvenience pushes us over what he called the indifference threshold. And this is why his outsiders, many of them, followed Nietzsche's advice and lived dangerously. Build your houses on Vesuvius. You know, don't, don't go out to the soft, comfortable sort of life. Wilson wrote, uh, the, the, the comfortable life creates spiritual decay in the same way that soft, sweet food, you know, helps tooth decay. If you live this kind of comfortable, complacent sort of life, even with your best intentions, you, you will lose grip on what's important to you. You will become complacent in every day. And the things that mean everything to you will suddenly mean nothing to you. That's why these, all of, that's Nietzsche's advice. I mean, Dostoevsky knew this. Dostoevsky, before he became Dostoevsky, he was arrested um, with several other radical students. And they were, they were going to be executed in the Semenovsky Square uh, in, in St. Petersburg. And they were lined up, ready to go. And Dostoevsky says that, you know, he realized he only had a couple minutes left. And he was saying goodbye to one, one comrade and goodbye to another. And he was thinking of his, he writes this in one of his letters later on, and thinking of his family and all that. And he said, if only, if only, if only, you know, what a fool I was <laughs> to waste my life. And everything around him was like incredibly beautiful and all that. And what happened is that the last minute, they, they all got a reprieve. It was like, it was a joke. And one of the guys went insane. But Dostoevsky, later on in his novels, there's a famous scene in, um, I think it's Crime and Punishment, where he talks about, one of the characters who said, if you had the choice between being on a tiny, tiny ledge up in a mountain, you know, confronted with nothing but tempest and storm and wind and rain and all of that, or utter annihilation, what would you pick? And he said, give me tempest and storm. Because Dostoevsky had seen the true value of reality that we usually don't see because we're subject to this law of indifference. And Wittgenstein, I mean, he was like T.E. Lawrence, he was one. Wittgenstein had a, a he, he inherited a fortune. He was one of the richest men in Austria. He gave it away. He, gave, he desperately gave it away. His family tried to stop him from giving it away. But he gave it away, and then he went, and he like lost himself teaching to school children in some backwater in Austria. And then he lived in a hut in Norway for a while. You know, so I mean, people who had the opportunity to live very comfortably, chose to live very uncomfortably because they had an unconscious, instinctive 
recognition of this notion that you know the comfortable life is a, is a way of death. This this inconvenience crisis generates a sense of vitality in us. But why does it do that? What, 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 what's happening? You know, why do we sink into this kind of complacency? And Wilson came up with this notion that he called the robot, and hence the beyond the robot. Maybe I can, I can call it quits after this. Is that the, the robot is, is uh, it's an evolutionary labor-saving device that does its job too well. We all remember when we learned how to type or learned a foreign language, or learned how to ride a bike. When you first do it, it's incredibly difficult. You have to pay attention to every little thing. You know, you have, where's the key? You know, what am I doing? How do I do this? You know, but one day we know how to do it. And then we can do the higher level stuff. We can think about, oh, what do I want to type? Where do I want to go on the bike? What do I want to say in the foreign language? We've passed that work that labor on to something else, and this is what Wilson calls the robot. It's some part of it. That's what learning is. That's what learning how to do something is. I mean, I, when, I, I mean when I learned how to play guitar, insofar as I could play it, um, initially I had to pay attention to every little thing I did, and then one day, ooh, I didn't have to do that. But the problem with that is this, this device works too well. It starts doing things that we would like to do ourselves. It's like a hyper-efficient valet. Oh, let me do that for you. Let me do that for you. And we unconsciously, we allow it to do this. So the robot starts listening to Mozart when we want to listen to Mozart. And we're bored, even though we know it's a piece of music we love. It starts looking at the sunset. We like to look at the sunset. We like sunsets, but that one doesn't particularly do anything for us. We're not looking at it. The robot's doing it. The robot's job is to save energy and economize on that and, you know, it's a tightwad when it comes to our vital forces, and its job is to do all everyday things with the least amount of energy as possible. But we get tricked into doing that all the time. But what ha and T.S. Eliot is there because he's um, one of his poems. He says, "Where is the life we have lost in living?" And most would say it's in the hands of the robot. William James instinctively knew that, again, crisis and pressure and some some kind of tremendous demand on our um, energies can throw this off. And he talks about what he calls the bullying treatment. And it's, he was fascinated with um, the phenomenon of second wind. If you know with uh, athletes, you know, you're, you're running a marathon or something like that, and I can't go on, I can't go on anymore, I can't go on anymore, just, I'm out, I'm completely dead, that's it, I'm tanked. And then you make one last effort and suddenly bang, you've discovered a whole new reserve tank of energy. So James said, we live subject to degrees of fatigue which we have come only from habit to obey, which is another way of saying the robot. If you push someone past, James talks about neurasthenic patients that he had, patients that the life had become so difficult for them, they couldn't even get out of bed. They couldn't tie their shoes. They couldn't do the simplest, no, no, I, I just possibly, I just can't, I just can't, I just can't do it. And that if they were forced to do something, actually bullied. That's, I mean, you can't do it today. I mean, you, you, you know, the health and safety would, wouldn't let you do it. <laughs> but if you're bullied to do it, suddenly what seemed undoable was child's play. And these people would suddenly have come in contact with res reserves of vital, vital energy. So that's where Beyond the Robot. I'm going to leave it at that. This is a kind of uh, checklist of some of the things the outsider um, 
uh, has to preoccupy himself with. But uh, thanks for listening to this very loose and very impromptu talk. I appreciate your patience. Thank you.